I don't know if you've had this experience, you probably have, where someone's reaction to something you did for them or told them was not what you had expected. Might even be a disappointment. So maybe you researched and picked out what you thought was a very meaningful gift. You found the right price at the right store at the right time. You ordered it. You wrapped it. And you thought, they are just going to love this. They've been dropping hints. I know this will be the perfect gift for them. And they opened it, and maybe their reaction was pretty meh. Not that big of a deal. And you were disappointed because their reaction is not what you would expect for that. Or maybe you've had a great accomplishment. Something wonderful has happened. A promotion, a raise, a victory in a, in a sports match or another competition. And you were just so excited to go and share that news with someone important to you. And you told them all about it. You gave them the play-by-play. And their response was pretty standard. And they didn't match your excitement for what you were telling them. Maybe it's just that you've had a better-than-usual day, and you want to go and share that with someone. And you tell them all about your day and these wonderful things that happen, and you got to do this that you don't normally get to do, and you told it to this person, and, well, their response just wasn't that great. You've had those instances where the response just did not match what you thought was a great moment or a great event. And I wonder if that's how Jesus might have felt on the day he rose from the dead and in the week after. That's where we're going to be in John 20. We, we start on Easter Sunday, and really what John does is he takes the camera and he moves it around to different characters that we have met in the Jesus story. Some of these characters we know fairly well, like some of the disciples, Peter and John. Some of them, like Mary Magdalene, we have only met a chapter before in John's gospel. But all these characters get some airtime, and all of them have interesting responses to the resurrection event. And that's what we'll look at today. I want you to pay attention to how they are responding to the empty tomb. So we are going to start at the beginning of John chapter 20 with Mary Magdalene. So here's what John tells us. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said... They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So the action begins. It's pre-dawn, almost light, on Easter Sunday morning. And the first person to the tomb, this early arriver, is a woman that we've only met a chapter before. We don't know much about her in this story, but she gets there first. And her response is, they've taken The Lord out of the tomb. And this is where I always want to say, hey, let's define the they. They're not telling you these things. Okay, I hear you. Uh, Who's they exactly? Let's get clear on who this third person is that you're accusing of this action. They've taken him out of the tomb. So she doesn't go and say, the Lord is risen, just like he said. She says, well, someone's taken the body and we don't know where it is. And there's a brief interlude where if we follow our camera, it it zooms and 
zooms in on Peter and John, these other disciples. They don't take Mary Magdalene's word for it. When she says the tomb is empty, they go to the empty tomb. It's like, what do you think you're going to find? The same thing she told you. But they don't trust her. They don't take her word for it. They want to go to the scene of the crime, if you will. They show up, and finally John tells us they believe. Not they believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, but they believe that the tomb is empty. So they, they get there, but we finish the story back with Mary Magdalene. She has first said, they've taken the Lord, and we don't know where they've put him. And if you follow her story later on, the, one of the last things she says is, they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. The bottom line with Mary Magdalene is that she assumes that the body is gone, and her response is to grieve. That's her response. It's not, she's not overjoyed. She's not thankful. She doesn't feel like her belief has been confirmed. No, she is grieving. Not the response that you would expect to the risen Lord. But she is grieving. But what about the disciples? They've followed Jesus a while longer. He's explicitly told them what's going to happen. How are they processing this? Well, verse 19 tells us, on the evening of that first day of the week, so now we're same day, later at night, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. So you can understand some fear from them. We saw how followers of Jesus were questioned and treated during his trial in last hours. They have some good reasons to be afraid. So they are continuing to meet, but they're meeting behind locked doors. And I really wonder what that conversation was like, especially before Jesus showed up. Are they making plans to disband? Are they, are they sharing their grief together? Are they making plans to kind of disperse and, hey, you can't be seen together? I mean, what are they thinking? Because they're not meeting thinking, the Lord is risen. We're thankful for that. No, the disciples have their own response, and the disciples are fearful. So, so Mary Magdalene, she's grieving, and the disciples are fearful. And yet there's one disciple who has his own response, our friend Thomas. Now, Thomas is not there this evening. He's somewhere else. He's traveling. He's got an important appointment. I don't know. Thomas, uh, uh, John tells us this about Thomas in verse 24. Thomas wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. We're going to come back to Jesus' appearance, but they, they get to see Jesus. And Thomas says to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas wasn't there when Jesus shows up and he, he has to hear all this secondhand. Now, Thomas, we like to get on to Thomas. We give him the name, Doubting Thomas. How'd you like to be known for your worst moment? Thomas is only asking to experience what everyone else got to experience. He doesn't want secondhand information. But you then also want to say, Thomas, you know, you've been, you've been with this group for a few years now. And at the first moment of trouble, you think they're lying to you. 
They've told you what they've seen. And instead of going, I believe you because we've been through a lot together. And why would you make this up? Thomas says, nope. I need to see this for myself. He puts some conditions on his faith. Like, if we're honest, we do sometimes. Well, I'll only believe if this happens. No matter the specifics, Thomas has his own response. Thomas is doubtful. So think of this, by the end of this Easter narrative, the first week that Jesus has been raised from the dead, Mary Magdalene is grieving, and the disciples are fearful, and one in particular, Thomas, is doubtful. No one seems to be getting the response right. No one is overjoyed. No one feels like the message Jesus has been teaching them was confirmed. This is not how this was supposed to turn out. This is not how you respond to this momentous, timeline-changing event in the history of the world. And yet that's how these people respond. So what do you do if you're Jesus? Are you just gravely disappointed in all these people for getting it wrong? And you think, you know, I picked the wrong people to surround myself with for my ministry. No one is getting it right. That's not what happens. Because if we go back and revisit each of these stories, Jesus has a much different interaction with them than just getting on to them for failure. So if we go back to the Mary Magdalene story, when she finally encounters Jesus, when he says to her, Mary, when she recognizes him, and she calls him, Rabboni, which means teacher. Look what Jesus says to her in verse 17. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So Jesus could have berated her. How come you don't recognize me? Have you not been listening as I've told you I would be raised on the third day? He doesn't do any of that. He gives her some information and then he gives her a command. He says, go and tell. That's Mary's mission at the end of this encounter with the risen Jesus. He gives her a mission. Go and tell. So she becomes the first person in John's gospel who is going to go proclaim that Jesus is risen. The first person with that mission. Go and tell. What about these fearful disciples? What does Jesus say to them? Well, when he shows up in their room where they've got the doors locked and they're afraid, he says to them, peace be with you. And then he showed them his hands and his side. This is exactly what Thomas wants. They all saw that too, by the way. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So these fearful disciples who are meeting behind closed doors in secret, Jesus shows up, 
says, peace be with you. And then, not only does he say, peace be with you, he gives them a mission. Interesting in this context that the command he gives them is to forgive. Forgive. And that means broadly uh, some things. He's giving them some authority to go out and forgive sins. But think of in the context, their leader has just been killed. They might have some revenge in mind. And yet Jesus' first words is, are, are forgive. That's, that's his first words. Forgive. That's their command. What about Thomas? Our friend who says, I won't believe unless I experience this for myself. Don't give me any secondhand information. Well, he gets a chance at redemption. A week later, John tells us from that first Sunday, the disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Literally, we're re-scripting this. We're going to have a redo, as we might call it, for Thomas. He tells Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord... And my God. So Thomas gets what he wanted. A chance to see and touch and feel like the other disciples did. So he gets his information. And then Jesus gives him a mission, a command. What is it? Stop doubting and believe. So here we have these three groups of people John tells us about in chapter 20. All with their own response and all with their own mission. So... These people have gone from grief to joy and from fearful to being at peace. They've gone from doubtful to believing. These three characters, and they all not only get information, but they get a commission from Jesus. He didn't just come to change minds. He didn't just come so we would have a new thing to add to our list of beliefs to say, check, yes, I believe that. I can recite the creed and tell you what I mentally uh, agree with. They have a mission. So if we think about Jesus' resurrection and what it means for us, it's not just something for us to believe in. That's not just why John wrote his gospel. It's one of the reasons, but it's not the only one. Resurrection comes with a mission. Resurrection will lead to mission. It's not just something we believe and put our hope in, though it is that. It gives us a mission. We are called to do something as followers of Jesus because we believe he is risen from the dead. It's not just a belief that will change and be different for us. And I think about these three missions that Jesus gave people in chapter 20 of John's gospel. And I I think there's probably people in this room, some of us, need to hear these particular missions. So the first mission is to go and tell. This is the Mary Magdalene character. This is the mission that says, you know what? You've seen this great event. And your job is not to just nod along and keep this to yourself. One of the great crises that many writers will talk about with contemporary Christianity is that we struggle to meaningfully talk about our faith. I join you in that struggle. I never know 
when the appropriate time is to do that. And I'm not great at apologetics and the defenses of the faith. I sometimes don't feel equipped to have those conversations, though I know they're important. But what I do know is that if someone asks me, what difference has it made that you're a follower of Jesus? I want to be able to answer that question. I want to be able to talk about the difference it makes for my hope, for how I process difficult times. So for some of us, we might join Mary Magdalene with the mission to go and tell. Or maybe we join with the disciples and their mission is to forgive. Some of us have convinced ourselves that we can hold a grudge for a long time and that that's compatible with being a follower of Jesus. And we have these anger fantasies for what we would say if we really got to give someone a piece of our mind. And we, we nurse these grudges and these grievances. If Jesus, who was killed unjustly, can forgive people, I think we can too. I really don't think we have an excuse. I don't think it's going to make sense to say, well, Jesus, you don't understand. I've got this different situation that you, don't, you just don't know anything about. But mine's different. Maybe we join the disciples in a mission to forgive. Maybe we join Thomas in a mission to stop doubting and believe. Some of us might be on the fence about things, and we, we, we do the church thing because it's polite and we're asked to do it, but we're just not sure. And listen, all of us are going to go through seasons where we have some doubt. Nothing wrong with that. Pretty normal. But some of us have just gotten comfortable with a long-standing time of just being on the fence. And the resurrection of Jesus calls us to make a decision. Are you going to believe this? And if you do, things will be different for you. They won't look the same as they have before. So maybe your mission is to make a decision and to stop doubting and believe. Maybe that's your mission. So I don't know which of these characters you identify with. The person who needs to go and tell, or the person who needs to forgive, or the person who needs to believe. All I want you to know is that the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead is not just something we agree with in our head. It's something we live out with our whole lives, and it will call us to do things differently than we might have done them before. So John closes his gospel with these words. Julia read some of them for us a minute ago. He says, I wrote this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So may these words that John wrote not only reaffirm your belief in Jesus, but may these words also give you new life and a new mission in his name. Let's be standing.